0: This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing.
1: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Listen to a first-hand account about an illegal operation in the desert near Tumacacari, where amateur fortune hunters used dowsing rods and dynamite in search of a mythical buried treasure. Find out about the history of Jesuit missionaries in the Southwest during the time of Padre Kino's historic journeys. Meet Betsy Cruz Craig, who's playing the larger than life role of Hollywood legend Tallulah Bankhead in a new invisible theater production called Looped. And film essayist Chris DeShiel writes about an enigmatic new nonfiction film called A Shape of Things to Come. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. To most of us, the Sonoran Desert seems like such an enormous and empty place Almost anything can be projected onto it or into it. The idea that the desert is a place where dreams go to die is balanced by the fact that legends told about the desert can live on for generations. Back in 1962, John Miles was 20 years old, new to Tucson, and in search of an adventure. He found one in an unlikely place, a mobile home park near Miracle Mile. Next, we'll hear about it in Miles' own words. This edition of Archive Tucson was produced by Angus Anderson, oral historian at the University of Arizona Libraries.
2: Well, a legend. I first heard it from this guy, Dix, who who worked at the trailer park. You know, he was a prospector. He was an old man by this time. He was in his 70s, and he said he knew where this treasure was, but he didn't have any money to go looking for it, and the treasure was... I learned that Father Kino used to exploit the the native people down there at the mission at Tumacacri because there was a lot of silver there and they, they mined the silver ore, and I guess Kino kept records and they had a pretty good stash of silver. When he was called back to go back to Spain, he was told to bring the silver and gold that he had, but meanwhile the Apache Indians didn't like the idea of all these so-called Christian Indians that were there destroying the land and they were causing problems, so when Kino got called to go back, he couldn't take this stuff with him, so they hid it west of the mission up there in the mountains so this guy Dix you know he knew where the where the silver was. he had trained himself and been trained by people with dowsing rods. He'd put silver dollars in the end of the dowsing rods cause silver would attract silver and actually it kind of worked but I was kind of a little skeptical myself but heck I was ready for anything back then and the old man we got up there and he showed these rich people and they I mean they were just fascinated I mean, they kind of stupid I didn't I, I don't I didn't think they ever analyzed anything but they were paying me $10 a week I staked the claim for him. food was supplied if we found the treasure I would get like one tenth of one percent they gave me a Polaroid camera to take pictures of when we we found the, the treasure you know and then I was going to be the camp cook there was an old shack up there that somebody else had built years ago that we took over the old old man and I with some supplies we we waterproofed it had a cistern on there for water and we had a big wood stove to cook on, so I I would make breakfast. We hung the bacon from the rafters of the shack, you know, so kept the, the skunks and the rodents and eating our food. But, you know, we didn't have enough supplies. It was six miles to the old Nogales Highway, uh, and there was a payphone there at, at Wisdom's Cafe. And if we discovered the treasure, I was to go down there and call these people. And They were all excited when they heard from me. You found the treasure? No, no. I said, no, we're running short of grub, you know. This hard work. You eat a lot. So they left me some cash. So I hitchhiked and went to Nogales, and then I bought all these bags of groceries. So then I hitchhiked back, and then I put all these groceries in these backpacks, and I had one backpack on my back and the other one in the front. Where this cabin is, you know, it's a short distance from where the treasures at. And what the old man had me doing, we had to improve our foot trail to get up to the treasure site. And I thought, why why do we do that? I said, let's find the treasure first and and then do this foot trail. And he said, No, he said, This is what good miners do and I said, Okay, you know, you're the boss, you know, so we did a lot of pick and shovel work and the blasting was used for there were some big boulders around there. We didn't have any mechanical equipment, but we had these four-pound double jacks with star drill by hand to drill holes in, into these boulders. And then you'd have to kind of like pack the dynamite into the hole. You had to be careful. So then you'd light it, and then you'd yell, you know, fire in the hole, you know. And you'd take off and boom, and shatter it into a bunch of little pieces of rock. And it was hard to move even that smaller stuff by hand, you know. So the old man convinced them, And all the treasure isn't really exactly at this spot. It's over here now. He had his dowsing rod, and he convinced them to get a bulldozer and clean this land off, that this is where the treasure's at. How the hell did that treasure move? I became so upset with the old man because of the treasure not being where we thought it was going to be and all this moving around. I figured I'd got to get away from here, talk to some sane people, you know. I got to experimenting a lot with the dynamite. You know, what can I blow up and what can I blow up? You know, and we put in a total of, I think, seven weeks, to make a long story short. You know, we never found it. People we worked for were supposed to come up and get us. Well, they didn't show up. I had to call somebody to come get me. You know, I wanted to believe it, and I even said, Father Kino, if I. Find this place, I'm going to name my first firstborn, I'm going to name him or her Kino, you know. To just guide me to the right spot, you know. Going back there in subsequent years, you could still find the area where we worked because it's a total disaster in the mountains there. It caused all kinds of erosion. There's a scar up there, and I feel guilty about it because I was part of this team that did it. I really don't think there's a treasure there, but I would go hunting in that area and I'd see something in the distance that would catch my eye. Man, I would hike through thickets of whatever to get to it, and I was thinking, hey, Father Keanu, is this your treasure? I'm I'm on my way, you know. Let me go there and find this old helium balloon. (laughs)
1: The storyteller was John Miles. Producer Angus Anderson describes him as one of the busiest octogenarians that he's ever seen, staying involved with many activist organizations. Miles is currently the board president and an active volunteer at the Casa Maria Soup Kitchen. Archive Tucson is an oral history project of special collections at the University of Arizona libraries. You can find more stories from Tucson's past, including the full interview with John Miles at ArchiveTucson.com. So, about that hidden treasure. I have heard many stories about Father Eusebio Kino, the Jesuit missionary, explorer, cartographer, and astronomer who founded the San Javier del Bac mission in 1692. But somehow the legend of his hidden stash of purloined treasure, well, that's never come up. So I made a call to the Patronato San Javier and was soon in touch with Father Greg Adolf, pastor at St. Andrew the Apostle Catholic Church in Sierra Vista. He's also the president of the board of the Southwestern Mission Resource Center and member of the Keno Heritage Society of the Diocese of Tucson.
3: Well, we have a long history of treasure hunters who, looking through the ruins or around the missions, are seeking this uh, legendary treasure that was left behind by the Jesuits, and um, when the Jesuits were expelled from the Spanish Empire in this area in 1767, the legend is that the Jesuits didn't have time to get the treasure somewhere else, and so they buried it on the premises or even inside the walls, and so we've got a kind of a long history of, of vandalism connected with these missions, and treasure hunters seeking this this lost Jesuit gold or lost lost Jesuit silver.
1: Well, with that amount of interest, I can only imagine, Father Greg, you're going to tell me that many such treasures have been discovered over the centuries.
3: <laughs> well, as we try to inform people, the treasure is actually the building itself and the communities that were established. That's the treasure, and um, the relationships between the uh, missions and our You know, contemporary culture is strong with uh, food and uh, festivals and lots of other things, and that's the treasure. And when people vandalize these mission sites and um, go looking in the desert for this lost treasure, they're um, really missing the treasure that's there.
1: (laughs) Well said. What else can you tell me about this legend and the negative impact that the stereotyping has had upon the efforts of the Jesuit mission?
3: Mark, our history, of course, is written in English, and that reflects an English that is a British point of view in many instances, and the um, development in the 16th century and then into the 17th century of what has been called in Spanish the legenda negra, the black legend, is known to historians that from an English historical point of view, anything that is Spanish... Anything that is Catholic is suspect and is um, nefarious. And the agents of this terrible Spanish Catholic conspiracy to rule the world are the Jesuits. So the particular opprobrium attaches to the Jesuits. The black legend is simply anything Spanish and Catholic is, is suspect. When I was going to school, we never read anything in public school about Spanish settlements or Spanish colonization. Um, it, it was only about the English. Uh, Massachusetts, Virginia, with some nod to Canada. But it was interesting that even when I was in school, there was a kind of an English perspective that anything that's Spanish is, is not worth recording. Thankfully, that's been revised. Much so, and that's been part of the hard work of historians and and social scientists who have looked again and helped us to see that it's a much richer landscape and cultural heritage that we enjoy in the United States than simply that which came from the British Isles.
1: Rather than viewing the Native people as a colonizer or as an exploiter might look at them, can you tell me something about what Jesuit teachings would have told Usabi Kino about his role and how he would have approached forming a formal relationship with the Native people in this region.
3: Well, thank you. That's a great question. Part of the reason the promotion of Padre Quino's cause for canonization is exactly that he is something of a role model in terms of engagement with other peoples and other cultures. He was deeply respectful of the natives, and he treated them as equals. Now, the Jesuit approach to missions and to to education at that time was was andragogy. You teach adults as adults. So that was part of Padre Kino's spiritual and intellectual equipping, was that he treated the natives as if they had acquired Experience of desert living that was very valuable and could be shared. And that's in contrast to pedagogy, which was used by other missionary orders, specifically the Franciscans, which is to teach everyone as if they're a child. Well, that changes the dynamic very much when you speak to an adult as if they're a child and you look at the other, even an adult, as if they're a child. That limits what you believe they possess of their own life experience to share. That's what Kino brought to it, was this enormous respect for uh, the desert, its peoples, the culture that was here, his willingness to uh, sit and listen to the natives and um, garner the information they had about surviving in this desert. Uh, pretty extraordinary. He was uh, deeply committed to their dignity as human beings, and made a very long trip, of course, on horseback to Mexico City to make certain that the laws that were in place would be enforced up on this frontier, that you could not enslave natives, and that the taking of slaves was, was forbidden. And he was so very much seen as protector of the natives that he was often at odds with the Spanish colonists, particularly those who wanted that cheap labor for ranches and mines. And was in conflict at times with the, with the Spanish colonizers. But through all of that, he managed to build bridges of understanding and cultural exchange, not just with food, but with ideas. And, and um, this is why we feel he's in a category of his own as a bridge builder. And especially at a time when walls are going up, we think he's a model for how you, how you relate to other cultures, other belief systems, other life experiences, other human beings.
1: Thanks to Father Greg Adolph, pastor at St. Andrew the Apostle Catholic Church, president of the board of the Southwestern Mission Resource Center, and member of the Keno Heritage Society for sharing his knowledge. My heart is as pure as the driven slush. I have only three phobias. I hate to go to bed, I hate to get up, and I hate being alone. And I'd rather be strongly wrong than weakly right. You may not have seen many of her movies, but chances are you've heard a quote from Tallulah Bankhead in your lifetime. She was from that exclusive pantheon of Hollywood stars who were more interesting in real life than on the big screen. In addition to hundreds of acclaimed acting roles, she partied with Zelda Fitzgerald and Hattie McDaniel. She helped refugees escape persecution during the Spanish Civil War and World War II. She interviewed Lennon and McCartney on The Tonight Show, and she was one of the first openly bisexual celebrities in America. Bankhead died in 1968 at the age of 66, her life cut short by a variety of addictions. Much of her fascinating history comes to light in the Broadway play Looped, written by Matthew Lombardo. It's currently in Tucson as part of Invisible Theater's 50th performing arts season. Joining me now is Betsy Cruz-Craig, who stars as Tallulah Bankhead in a story set during what might have been the longest eight hours in Bankhead's life.
0: I think the first time I ever heard about her was I heard a story about her doing something with Catherine Hepburn. The two of them were arguing and there was a phone call and it was supposed to be Tallulah's monologue. And she picked up the phone and handed it to Catherine Hepburn and said, it's for you. (laughs) And so I've always loved that theater story. You know, she was so committed to who she was without apology. Absolutely, you know, originally unique. In the long scope of her history, I think you know, unfortunately, the world didn't get enough of her as an actress. She, you know, became a celebrity in her later years. And it's really interesting to think about had she stayed, you know, in these amazing roles that she played throughout her you know, early and middle career, what we could have seen from her because she truly was brilliantly gifted.
1: Did you know that she played a villain once on the 1966 Batman TV show?
0: I did know that. I did know. And did you know that the character of Cruella DeVille Mm. was based on Tallulah, which is an interesting little tidbit too. But I did know about Batman because I think she was like, I'm not going to do this. And then someone convinced her to do it.
1: Yeah, it was just a couple of years before she passed away, which is also the era that Looped uh, occurs in. So without giving too much away, can you briefly explain the story behind this play? What is it that Looped is actually about?
0: This is based on an actual event where Tallulah Bankhead went into a sound studio in Los Angeles to re-record a piece of dialogue that had been poorly recorded. So her last film was called Die, Die, My Darling which is sort of a cult classic and you can actually find it on Amazon for anybody who's interested um and it's quite the film. <laughs> but there was one line in this film that that had been jumbled by the sound engineer and so she was called in post filming to re-record this one bit of dialogue and that's called, you know, looping. And it took her famously eight hours to record this one line of dialogue for many reasons, um, not the least of which she herself was looped. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got a double entendre on the, on the title for sure. And
1: is it a simple piece of dialogue?
0: It is one line, okay. one line. <laughs> and you hear that line in the play quite frequently in a, a variety of different ways. Yes. And it doesn't take eight hours in our production. But um, yeah, it's not questions. in real
1: time. Yeah, Not in good.
0: real time. Thank goodness condensed. Um, But that's the basis of this. And and you you have this relationship that develops between the young man who is is working in the studio with her, Danny Miller. He's the editor, but he's been the last man standing. He and the sound engineer that's stuck in the booth, they're basically held hostage by Tallulah until she can get this line recorded correctly. And through the piece, Tallulah probes and pokes and wants to understand more about this young man. And likewise with him, who, you know, she has been one of his favorite stars that he has watched in his life. And that is revealed in the piece, too. And so two human beings who seemingly have nothing in common come together kind of magically over their love of the art and, and understanding each other and so it's a really beautiful piece. It's not just, you know, uh, a character reveal of Tallulah, but you also get a really fascinating look at this relationship that develops between these two people.
1: Well, Betsy, what's foremost on your mind as a performer to embody Tallulah on stage?
0: It's difficult when you're playing a, an iconic character. Um, that and, and Tallulah has been, you know, very iconic in a lot of different communities. You know, she's a favorite for a lot of drag queens, you know, is often seen in that world. And for me, you know, the one thing that you want to get down to the core of is the truth of who the human being is, you know, going beyond the celebrity, going beyond the icon and looking at her as a human being. With wants and needs and, and and this piece she is coming towards the end of, of certainly her career and actually she's wrapping up a lot of things in in this piece and so for me as an actor it's as much honesty and, and revealing who she is as a human rather than just what people have seen or what people have heard um, is the most important thing for me as I, as I come in and approach her and you know and paying homage to her because as I said I think as an actress she's underrated I wish we could have seen more
1: I think the only film I've ever actually seen her in is Lifeboat
0: which she's brilliant in she's wonderful I mean that performance is I I watched it a couple times um, and her performance definitely stands out and makes that film you think about the time period she's really kind of fascinating to watch as, as an actor you know, it's basically her with a bunch of, of males, and she certainly stands her ground. She's, she's, quite, she's quite interesting to watch in that film.
1: Well, let's talk for a moment about the quotes. Okay.
0: The, <laughs> Which one, Doc? There are so many.
1: There are so <laughs> many. Why don't you share one of your favorites?
0: Uh, if I had my life to live over again, I'd make the same mistakes only sooner. <laughs> what
1: about uh, Only Good Girls Keep Diaries, Bad Girls Don't Have Time?
0: I love that one, and it's, it's very characteristic of her. <laughs> I don't think she had a lot of time. She certainly was too busy to keep a diary, although she has a really interesting autobiography, which I recommend to people.
1: My guest was Betsy Cruz Craig, who stars as Tallulah Bankhead and Invisible Theater's current production of Looped, It runs through September 26th. You can find a link to showtimes and details about Invisible Theater's COVID protocols on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. We began this show with some thoughts about the vast borders of the Sonoran Desert and the multitude of secrets that it may contain. Here to conclude the show by returning to that theme is film essayist Chris DeShiel.
4: A shape of things to come film by Lisa Malloy and J.P. Snydecki, opens with a drone shot of a familiar landscape, the Sonoran Desert. Then we see a man suddenly sit up from his lying down position in the grass. It's an older man with a long beard and the weather-beaten look of people who live outdoors. He has a rifle, which he aims at a javelina, taking the animal down with one shot. He then brings it to a shack, evidently his home, where he carefully butchers and cooks it sharing the meat with his cat and several hogs. As the film goes on, we witness all the little activities that go into his day, including foraging for plants and herbs in the desert and cultivating a vegetable garden. He also has an old pickup truck that he drives around on errands of one sort or another, and often we see, as neighbors in his little world, border patrol vehicles and drones, fences, and surveillance towers. The film doesn't tell us his name. Only in the closing credits do we discover that he calls himself Sundog. We do see that he's a hermit who scratches out a living off the grid. There's no one sharing this life with him. We're not provided with a backstory, nothing about his history or what led up to him living this way. Only from reading about the movie afterward was my sense of the location confirmed. It is the southern Arizona desert, and the closest town is Aravaca. I went into this movie expecting, from what little I'd read, a documentary about this guy. But the term documentary can be limiting as an all-purpose label for nonfiction films. Malloy and Snydecki are not documenting things like journalists. They seek to evoke subjective impressions rather than convey information. In other words, this is actually more of an art film, using real people and events to weave a tapestry of sight and sound that connects interrelated ideas. Almost all of Sundog's activities, as he putters around his home or goes out in the desert for hunting and gathering, are performed in silence, or to be more accurate, accompanied by his grunts, wheezes, and other sounds. The austere, matter-of-fact style reflects a kind of tacit unity with the natural world. On the soundtrack, we hear birds and insects. We see a snake, a coyote, and other wildlife. And on top of all that are the human elements. We hear Sundog playing his radio, casually chatting with his animals, and, ominously, the booming sound of jet aircraft flying overhead. The film provides an occasional contrast in a few scenes where he goes into town, checks out books from the library, and spends time sitting in a bar, where he seems out of place but unruffled. The filmmakers don't ask questions. This is all his show. And the few things he does say paint a picture of someone who has rejected society's idea of civilization. In fact, considers it a deadly trap that he must escape. And it's someone who has built his life around alternatives to the mainstream, such as natural health foods and medicines. At one point, he claims that he used to help undocumented immigrants across the border. Gradually, a silent tension is established between Sundog and the official American reality represented by the Border Patrol and the drones and fences. The directors invite us to feel some discomfort. Is Sundog one of those fanatic militia types we've been seeing too much of lately? Well, there's much more of an old hippie vibe, with a dash of paranoia that lends itself to the conspiratorial view. But on the surface, at least, the movie is a purely sensory experience, a visceral expression of a unique worldview, not the detailed portrait of a character observed from the outside that would be a more typical approach. The title, A Shape of Things to Come, is an ironic nod to the 1933 H.G. Wells novel, The Shape of Things to Come, a story presenting a future society that has established a worldwide utopia with no more war, a vision that in hindsight looks totalitarian. The future hinted at in this film is clearly dystopian, a shadow of coming collapse, There's a blur between reality and imagination, as it seems that Sundog is plotting to sabotage a nearby surveillance tower. Now, it's tempting to dismiss all this, but when we look at the way things are really going in the world, especially with the looming climate emergency, Sundog doesn't seem that far off from the truth. The movie culminates in visions. We watch as Sundog carefully captures a desert toad, then proceeds to extract venom from this toad, which he eventually smokes. The hallucinations that result, which the directors playfully attempt to replicate, stand in for the film itself, a quest to leave ordinary ways of thinking behind and enter into new radical forms of experience. This is Arizona Spotlight, and I'm Chris DeShiel.
1: Chris DeShiel adds that your best chance for now to see A Shape of Things to Come is as a rental through the Grasshopper Films website. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
0: Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.